Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of Revelation Hour in Focus. I am joined here again for the third time, but not the final time, with Martin Witter, columnist and writer, and the writer of the book End Time Again. And uh, I don't know if you guys have been following us over the last few weeks, we cover run through the topic and really actually this book is just amazing it's looking about end time throughout history from the ascension of jesus all the way to today so over the last two podcasts we spoke about the new testament belief in the second coming we spoke also about christian emperor and end times we spoke about the viking as agent of the antichrist we talked a lot about the year 1000 which is very simple and also last week, we also talked about the Crusades. The Crusade, what's the relationship between end time and Crusade? We talked about pop versus emperors. And we also spoke about the Black Death. Millions of people died in those times. And people really believed that that was the end of it. We also spoke about the Reformation and the uh, implementation of print, which kind of accelerated pamphlets and messages about end times. And we also talked about the building of the New Jerusalem. Today... We are going to cover this last section which is going to go from the 19th century all the way to today. How are you, Martin? I'm very well, although I am a little hot. It's boiling here. Apparently, it's supposed to be the... Tomorrow, they said it will be the hottest day of... No, from history, I believe. It's been since they started doing um, those... Uh, um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I yeah, don't know what yeah, I want hot. to say. I'm too yeah, hot. hottest day tomorrow. In, yeah, hottest day <laughs> tomorrow in the UK. Tomorrow. In the UK, it's been hotter elsewhere, but it looks like it's going to be the hottest ever recorded in the UK. So it's certainly wow. historic times. Well, it's 37 degrees here in Kent wow. and probably 38 in London. What about you in yeah. your area? It's about uh, 34, uh, 33. About 30, uh, 34, 35, I think. Oh, brilliant! Well, I hope that you're ready for me for this evening for a lot of different questions about the mm. last topic. I'm very, very excited about it. And for those who are following us, we also will be having a panel discussion next week again with Martin Wittock and other guests when we'll be discussing about end time. So if you have any question that you would like to ask Martin or any of our other guests, please any email us at info at revelationhour.co.uk and we will submit your question to the panel. And also, if you would like to attend this panel, it will be on Zoom, on YouTube as well. So you'll be able to ask your question as we go along i'm exhausted it's too hot here so martin you know l- last time around we, we talked about you know we finished about the time of disappointment here and and i think it was a quite very interesting kind of wrapping up the 18th century mm-hmm. now yeah. we now starting from the 19th century uh today and one of the questions i wanted to ask is this i love napoleon where i used to until i understood exactly what he was up to but for my understanding, you know, listening from French uh, French lessons, you know, they've been just raving about Napoleon, you're conquering the whole world in that sense, especially straight after, straight after the French Revolution in that sense. They got rid of the kings, you know, and then he's coming in and it's just a really literally he, he was he was very smart. I mean, we were learning from the books and from the from the from the lesson in France. You know, he was a, a tremendous tactician, military tactician mm. as well. Very small, but very military tactician. And it's not until he was going places until he was stopped in Waterloo. So what is the relationship between Napoleon and the end times? 
Well, a number of students of prophecy at the time felt that something very significant had occurred in terms of end times events during the upheavals of the French Revolution and its aftermath, starting in 1789 and then ending in the final de defeat of Napoleon in 1815. This was especially so because the early French Republic was antagonistic to organised Christian religion and to Christianity itself. For example, uh, Tolstoy's famous novel War and Peace sets its opening in 1805 with Russians discussing whether Napoleon is the Antichrist. And in that novel, the lead character in the book later reflects on a claim that Napoleon's name and title added up to 666. Apparently, allegedly. And he was not the first or the last to attempt this calculation. And views such as this regarding Napoleon were found across Europe and in the USA. In fact, the British writer Edward Irving believed that the 1,260 days of Revelation 11.3 and 12.6, which he read as referring to the Catholic Church, had ended in 1792. This rule had also, in his view, represented the little horn of Daniel 7. So he believed he was living in a period of trial that would last for 75 years, that would see the Jews restored to the promised land and would culminate, he thought, in the second coming in 1867. Now, so, he was not alone. Sorry, so yeah, it's, go on. It's quite, quite interesting what you, you mentioned here. I mean, how did they come up with this calculation of Napoleon uh, being the Antichrist based on the number 666? Ah, yeah, I was frightened you'd, you'd ask me that. I'm not quite sure what the maths were about on that. The, the only thing I can say is that maths like this get very, very complicated and very, very creative. Um, I once saw somebody, just as an exercise, uh, set out that they wanted to prove that Vladimir Putin's uh, name came to 666. And th they weren't doing it sincerely. They were doing it just to prove a point. And by being quite creative and by moving a few numbers around and moving a few letters around and giving, giving the letters of the name values, they then came up with Vladimir Putin being 666. Now, they didn't believe that was the case. I don't believe it was the case. But they were just making the point that if you're creative enough, you can often misspell a name, change a name, and you can come up with that that amazing calculation, or shocking calculation rather, um, of 666. So I don't think Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist. Um, I don't think Napoleon was either. But people at the time were being very, very creative to come up with that that shocking calculation that he was. But, but, but Irving wasn't alone because the Russian Tsar, Alexander I, now he objected to Napoleon's emancipations of the Jews because anti-Semitism was, I'm sad to say, very strong within Russia. Um, and so he demanded... This is the Tsar, that the Russian Orthodox Church would protest against Napoleon's tolerant religious policy because, shockingly, he opposed this freedom being given to Jewish people because, as I say, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Russia mm. and so they didn't like the fact Napoleon was giving greater freedom uh, to Jewish people. And, in fact, Alexander said that Napoleon, in his proclamation, was the Antichrist and the enemy of God. And many contemporary Russians saw events as a struggle to defend what they saw as orthodox, monarchist and aristocratic Russia from the onslaught of a godless and de-Christianized post-revolutionary France. Uh, they cited the persecution of the church and the clergy during the French Revolution, the introduction of a new Republican calendar and the cult of reason, Napoleon's emancipation of the Jews I've just referred to, and mm -hmm. despite the 1801 Concordat with 
Rome, the frequent clashes Napoleon had with Pope Pius VII that ended in 1809 with the excommunication of the French Emperor and the imprisonment of the Pope. In fact, they said that the French Grande Armée, which eventually, the Grand Army, which eventually invaded Russia in 1812, was seen by many Russians as an evil force with the Antichrist at its head. And looking back, we can see that given the turmoil of the revolutionary and then the Napoleonic Wars, but also the economic, political and social turbulence that continued to impact on Europe in the decade after the final defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo, in 1815, it's perhaps not, perhaps not surprising that some students of prophecy sought to identify these events in Scripture. Now, we now know they were wrong, but they looked into Scripture, they interrogated it, and they found clues that persuade, they were persuaded pointed to Napoleon. But they also projected on events their own prejudices, such as, for example, when they saw the campaigns going on in the UK for the political emancipations of Catholics. Uh, many enthusiastic Protestants saw that as evidence of collaboration with Babylon, as they put it. And in fact, that man Irving that I've just referred to preached mm -hmm. that the bowl of wrath poured by the seventh angel, Revelation 16, 17, would soon occur. That would be the prelude to the rapture, then the tribulation, which would come immediately prior to the second coming. And of course, that he thought would happen somewhere around 1867 from his calculations, which of course were wrong. That's very interesting, you know. I mean, again, you know, looking back at all those, um, you know, the previous podcast, we discussed uh, the current climate, mm. you know, situation can push yep. people to actually believe that they are experiencing and they are witnessing that the last days are pre pretty much yep. as well. Um, I did hear quite clearly uh, about Napoleon, you know, be the Antichrist uh, in that sense in, in those times. Um, simply because of his desire of conquest, um, yes. his desire of really dominating the whole world, because that was his vision. You know, he wanted a unified world in that sense under his leadership. Um, yeah. and the other, and, and, the, and the other thing was, mm. people were looking for, at the time and since, a revitalized Roman Empire, That's which right. they saw as being a fulfillment of prophecies, particularly prophecy. in Daniel. Yeah. Mm. So, so just as people had seen that in some had in the Holy Roman Empire in Europe in the 17th, sorry, beg your pardon, the 17th century, uh, way back in the 13th century, 12th, 13th mm -hmm. century. Um, so they then saw it happening again. They believed in the Europe of the 18th and the 19th century, and you can see how some people then began to think that was the case under Hitler again and we see yeah. it in our own day and we'll talk about this a little bit later on so yeah. people who are looking for a revival of the roman empire as they see it as a fulfillment mm -hmm. of daniel have tended to see these things and of course they, they've been incorrect in seeing them because mm -hmm. the second coming did not take place but there has been this tendency to see anything that unifies or brings together or is an imperial project that unites europe as in the past or politically peacefully now has been recognized as significant but then people have gone on further and said ah i think that's the fulfillment of a revitalized fourth you know fourth kingdom and there it runs from there and so napoleon was being judged in that light too mm, which is very interesting um touching on the other aspect of your book which is uh derby and dispensationalism mm, yeah. uh, in that sense um can you tell us a little bit more about this 
Yeah, this is really, really very, very important. During the 19th century, ideas were developed that continue to shape end times thinking across wide areas of the church, particularly the evangelical church, in the 21st century. Because today, belief in the pre-tribulation rapture is mainstream amongst students of prophecy. But it wasn't always the case. It was a doctrine that was largely unknown for the bulk of Christian history until the 19th century. And when it was touched on in earlier periods, it wasn't the, what you might call the centrepiece of end times time framing that it now is. So suggestions that evidence for it can be found in some aspects, of the writings of Irenaeus, second century, uh, Victorinus, fourth century, Joseph Mead, 17th century, and Increase Mather, 17th to 18th century, don't challenge the general conclusion that it didn't form a central part of church end times thinking, a central part that is, before the middle of the 19th century. And the 19th century changed that. And what altered the situation was the going mainstream, as it were, of the doctrine of dispensationalism and the linked idea of the pre-tribulation rapture. Mm-hmm. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with this, uh, some listeners will be very familiar with this, but some might not be. So dispensationalism holds that God has two covenant relationships with two different groups of people, the Jews mm-hmm. and the Christian church. And that these two relationships form part of two what's called dispensations in salvation history. Uh, and the idea of the pre-tribulation rapture that's connected to that is that the church, meaning those who are true believers, it is thought, will be instantly and supernaturally removed from the earth prior to the culmination of a time of unprecedented, terrible judgment and suffering, the tribulation, which itself will immediately precede the second coming of Christ. With the church no longer on the earth, there are different versions of this, but with the church no longer on the earth, God's covenant relationship with the Jews, which has never been abandoned, will in effect, according to this view, be revived, and this will come centre stage in salvation history. Jews will accept Jesus as the Messiah. Other people too, not previously part of the church, will also do this. Then Christ will return. Now, it seems that the first formulation of the idea, as we would now recognise it, occurred in the writings and preaching of Edward Irving and the Albury Prophecy Conferences. And this idea was promulgated in publications such as in Irving's introduction to a book called The Coming of the Messiah in Glory and Majesty, Mm -hmm. 1826 and arguably the word rapture there's some debate about this was first used to describe the translation in the way we now know it of christians as the way by which they would meet the lord in the june 1830 edition of the morning watch Mm -hmm. now the that was a a publication that he he edited now the idea that the conversion of jews would precede the second coming of jesus and the connected idea of jews returning to the middle east had been expressed by some writers since the 17th century and i think we did touch upon that a little bit last time Mm -hmm. but it had been a minority point of view the idea that the church would be removed sometime before the tribulation and the actual arrival of jesus had appeared in writing stretching back to the Roman Empire, but it had not been widely or officially held. It gained increased traction from the 17th century, although it was not extensively held, and it exploded from the middle of the 19th century. So, and, yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah, quick question. Why Why did it explode in the middle of the 19th century? Because we've seen this portion of scriptures, and it's quite interesting, I was actually uh, preaching about the rapture about mm. uh, two weeks ago, and you know obviously um second thessalonian and someone just depicted first thessalonian as well and 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 first second corinthian as well speak about it you know when you know paul mentioned about the elements of corrupt you know in air to meet the lord in that Mm. sense 
And you, mm. you mentioned quite rightly, and, and I think something that I wanted to touch is, you know, the scriptures have always been there and it hasn't really, really kind of used as much in that sense. But why in the 19th century there's been such a, a, an explosion of teaching on the topic of the rapture? Yeah, that's a really very good question. <clears throat> I think partly it's because there is within scripture over the rapture and you know you might want to discuss this in the pa in the pa in the panel discussion next week perhaps mm -hmm. that there is in script scriptures as you look at it arguably some different ways to read that now some christians mainstream now read the rapture as happening before the tribulation and therefore the church not being here during the tribulation and therefore then christ returning but but but, but still some christians today uh fewer than believe the mainstream viewpoint but in the past this was the majority view tended to view the rapture as happening at the second coming so people did not they didn't contest the idea of the rapture they believed that the rapture would happen that effectively at the second coming of christ the dead in christ would arise those who are still alive would be picked up and united with them in the air with the lord and so would be with him forever so mm -hmm. i think what one has to recognize is that within the scripture there is something about the raptor doctrine that can give rise to different interpretations and i think that traditionally there was a greater emphasis upon the rapture taking place within the moments if you like of if you put it in sort of time terms of the coming of jesus at that mm. moment at that time now what happened in the 19th century was that the idea was picked up and then popularized by a man of very great energy i mean whether one agrees with him or disagrees with him very great energy very sincere christian man uh, called john nelson darby who was very mm. influential in the formation of the brethren movement uh, and the brethren movement was one of those movements that was reacting against a lot of liberalism that was that was in the the, the, the established church and 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 it drew a lot of people's uh, support uh, in response to their criticism of what they felt was the non-biblical approach of the established church now nelson and Darby and others had huge influence and Darby had huge influence a very organization very skillful man very organized man a very energetic man and, and his work popularized this idea which had first of all been brought about by Irving though he gets no credit mm -hmm. for it at all by most people and popularized it in North America and beyond and from the 1870s it exploded and one of the reasons why it exploded humanly speaking obviously because you know one could debate was whether this was providential or, or, or whether it was due to human factors but you know but but in terms of analyzing it as as a historian one of the things exploded because it exploded was the concept was picked up by cyrus ingersoll schofield in the schofield reference bible which was produced in 1909 and Schofield incorporated many of Darby's ideas particularly his dispensational ideas in the annotations in the notes that are in that bible so if you have a Schofield reference bible or if one knows the Schofield reference bible it has the scripture there but it also has a lot of commentary and the commentary within that isn't neutral because every commentator has their point of view i mean they're being sincere but there can be disagreements with, with you know between commentators of course they can and and the commentary you find in the schofield reference bible bible is very much geared to the ideas of darby and the schofield reference 
Bible has sold literally millions and millions, I do not exaggerate, millions and millions of copies. And therefore, it's influenced a vast number of people. So whether one agrees with Darby or whether one agrees with Schofield or not, it's indisputable that literally tens of millions of Christians over the last century have got out their Schofield reference Bible, looked at a scripture, like one from Thessalonians, for example. They've then looked at the notes that go with it and they've seen the dispensational view of that scripture. Now, that might be right, it might be wrong, but what it has done is it has hugely popularised that particular way of understanding those scriptures. It's very interesting what you mentioned. So, you know, kind of, re kind of talking about this. So, we are moving from, uh, we moved from basically post-tribulationist to pre-tribulationist people yes. that believe that the rapture will take place at the moment of jesus return to now which is now pretty much the majority of of, of yes. uh, christian doctrine and believers you yes. know believe or want to believe that the rapture will take place before the coming of the antichrist or before the seven years tribulation in in, in that sense so that's right and i think yeah it mm. is interesting and i, and I think it, it's almost inevitable that the point of view that one knows at mm. any one time like yeah. now mm -hmm. um you almost naturally assume that everybody has thought that always or mm. or or every right thinking person has thought that always if you're aware <laughs> there's kind of a bit of a conflict a bit of a conflict going on that's right and i think one one of the things that comes from looking at end times beliefs is that over 2000 years the christian church has sincerely believed in it but has also sincerely believed some very very different things about it and i mm -hmm. think that can come as a bit of a culture shock sometimes when you look at what is now taken for granted in one's fellowship, or what pastor mm -hmm. says on a Sunday morning and so on, what are in the books you read and so on and so forth. And then you step back from that and look at what was being said a generation ago, two generations ago, three generations ago, and so on and so forth. And you can find sincere Christians believing from Scripture, but interpreting it quite differently, some very different viewpoints. And I think one of the challenges recognising is there has not been one model of reading and understanding the prophetic scriptures over 2000 years there have been trends and fashions which have come and gone and sometimes repeated and sometimes sunk without trace but certainly there has been a really interesting how, how would one put it a history of variety mm. in in sincere christian views of the end times based which on scripture a, i mean based on scripture obviously which yeah. is a quite interesting because now most you know i, I know for circle of friends and and prophetic mm. people and and, and prophets and, and and teachers and, and and so on as well many people expect a jesus return pretty much if not in our lifetime maybe in yeah. the lifetime of our children in that sense yes now if it were to appear that jesus doesn't return in about next to two to three hundred years you know two three hundred years has passed yeah. and jesus hasn't returned yet it is quite possible that we may experience another type of doctrine in terms of the rapture because we yes. people may be moving to the mid-trip, for example, when they believe that, that the rapture may be taking place uh, three years and a half into the tribulation period based yeah. on, on teaching. So it's quite interesting what you mentioned, and I love what yeah. you said because it's, you're right. We're taking for granted that people always believe this, but actually through centuries, as you mentioned and as it's written in your book, 
people have different views and different understanding of when the rapture will be taking place in that sense so that's, Indeed. that's and a we, very and important we, point yeah absolutely and we and we may see we may see i don't know we may see a return in the mainstream position to the concept of the rapture as being simultaneously with the second coming, which That's would be right. very, very different to the viewpoint that the rapture is held today. But, mm -hmm. but, but the rapture has become, the rapture as we, as we now sort of know it, as it were, has become mainstream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is absolutely, I mean, it is, it is now the way it is these days. And, and, and I think that's, that's very, very good. I want to touch about a couple of points, maybe very briefly on one yes. point and then just talking a little bit more on the other point. The, the very briefly point I wanted to touch in relation to your book, it's about the great disappointment in the USA and afterwards. What can yes. you tell us about this? Right. In the 1830s, the follower of a Baptist minister called William Miller proclaimed the second coming would occur in 1843 or 1844. Now, mm -hmm. we're not told to name dates, but he named dates. Under Miller's influence, they developed an approach towards the letters in the seven churches, and here we're back to interpretation again, found in Revelation, which identified the seven churches, Miller believed, as referring to different stages in the history of the church. So they had an interpretation of the seven church revelation, which was quite significantly different to other Christians, but which many, many millions began, to, well, many hundreds of thousands began to adhere to. So the Millerites, as they came to be called, thought they were living in the age of the church of Laodicea, a lukewarm church that famously mm. was neither hot nor cold, which we will have heard of. It's, it's a very famous one. And they mm. believed that that was not a type of church. It was not a church in the past. It was not a mindset. It might have been all those things as well. But they believed it also was a particular age in the life of the church. I, by, mm. by the church, I mean the whole, you know, the whole church in, in, its, in its history since its formation mm. in the first century. And they believed that the final age was, was going to last from 1798 till 1843 to 44 and like the brethren who were developing at the same time remember who were connected with Derby the Millerites were pre-millennialists and in the USA this was a shift from the post-millennialist position that had once been common in North America um, due to the writings of influential people like Jonathan Edwards but mm -hmm. but that 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 post-millennialist position that idea that Christ will come at the end the, the culmination of millennium was shifting in the 19th century to a pre-millennialist position. And the Millerites were very, very strongly into it. And, and, and they, they really became date setters. They narrowed down the date as being the 22nd of October, 1844. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where did they get that from? Where did they get that from? Now, they claimed that was based on Daniel 8.14, which referred to 2000. 300 days occurring before the sanctuary is cleansed. Now, this Miller believed, one might add, in my opinion, without any direct, direct scriptural evidence, he said, referred to the second coming of Christ. So the question was, when do you date it from? This was then converted from days into years. So 2,300 days became 2,300 years, which is an approach often adopted in such calculations. But where would it, where would it start from? Well, Miller dated this, in his view, from Ataxerxes' decree to rebuild the Jerusalem temple. Miller believed that happened in 457 BC. And so by counting forward 2,300 days equals years, the date 1844 emerged. Well, where did he get the 22nd of October from? That was because in 1844, the 22nd of October was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. 
very oh. important in the Jewish calendar. And yeah. Christ, as the high priest of the new covenant, as in the letter of the Hebrews, which it does clearly say, Miller appear, believed, would appear on that day. Now, there's absolutely no scriptural basis for dating the second coming to be associated with the Jewish the Day of Atonement. I can't think of a single scripture that says that. But anyway, Miller said that, and it soon gained considerable traction. Thousands mm. upon thousands of people signed up to the Millerite point of view. But the problem was, as well as actually breaking the scriptural commandment about not talking about, you know, the, the time or the hour, even that precise date had its own hidden complications because the Millerites had taken it from the minority Jewish Kerite calendar, not the mainstream rabbinic Jewish calendar. If they'd done that one, they'd have had a different date, 23rd of September. The only consolation is both would have been wrong. Um, now, um, it didn't occur and it became known as the great disappointment thousands mm. tens of thousands of people were waiting gathering some gave up their jobs some sold their farms wow. uh, yeah 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 right across the midwest and you can imagine it was it was hugely disappointing many drifted out of the movement as a result of this but others remained and in and miller himself was was expelled from the baptist church to be the baptist minister and he died in 1849 but some of those people that be, uh, had been in or on the fringes of the millerite movement in 1863 were some of the key people who formed the seventh day adventist church and and early seventh day adventists of course the seventh day adventist church is still with us um mm -hmm. the early seventh day adventist church advanced a reworked view of Miller's interpretation of prophecy that in its revised form stated that something significant had they believed happened in 1844 but in the invisible heavenly realm. Now Miller had not said that but by recalibrating, we've come to that phrase again, but by reconsidering and recalibrating they were able to say we didn't make a mistake in 1844, something did occur but it was invisible. I have to say, I believe Jehovah's Witnesses have said similar things at times yep, more recently. Over fail, over fail things. Things have occurred in the heavenlies, they've said, when they clearly said things were going to happen on earth and they didn't. And mm -hmm. so they then believed a trigger event had, in ha had happened. Christ had come to cleanse the sanctuary of heaven. And so the second coming was still imminent. And in the, it's interesting, in the same aftermath of the great disappointment, another group was started that responded to the failure of specific end times predictions by doing more of the same. And that, of course, was the beginning of a movement that is not, I repeat, not a mainstream Christian movement because they do not sign up to the creeds of the church and our belief in the divinity of Christ. But the Jehovah's Witness movement came out of the same background as the Seventh-day Adventists did because both these groups, very different groups, very different groups, but they emerged out of the huge disappointment that had occurred in the 1840s. This is a very, very fascinating, very fascinating. I would encourage our listeners to really read the book and really just get immersed with the, with the history and the relationship between history and end times. Touching on one of my favorite topics, um, I, I talk a lot about this, Israel, 1948. Yeah. What, what, yeah. What, how important that date is? Because we spoke about Israel before and we spoke about how people yes. believe in, in you know that is Israel um the church be the new Israel and, and so on and then suddenly we've got here we're coming to 1948 Israel become a state 
Yeah. Tell us about this. This is this, this is very important. I mean, clearly, it's hugely important politically. It's hugely important geopolitically, and obviously, for people that have studied prophecy and looked at prophecy, it's mm. not surprising that it's also accorded the status of huge significance. Mm. Okay, much Old Testament prophecy assumes the presence of a Jewish community in the Middle East, what we might call Israel in the land is a given. Old Testament prophecies refer to the scattering of the people of God, Deuteronomy 28.64, them eventually being returned to the land. We find it Jeremiah 23.3, Isaiah 11.12. Now, mm -hmm. many academic experts often suggest that this referred to the historic Babylonian exile and the return, that basically this is preterism, that effectively it is prophetic, but it actually refers to events that, are, that have already happened. However, it does seem the sense of an ultimate restoration that's beyond the return from Babylon, which obviously mm. is, 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 is a hugely important event. But however, the sense of ultimate restoration does seem to be clear in these passages that, that they are also referring to a reordering of society, a reordering of the world, which, which does give them an end times character and possibly, arguably, two applications. Now, while New Testament prophecy is less geographically specific, Parts of it have also been read in the same way. There's a widespread belief, for example, that Jesus will return in person to the Mount of Olives just outside mm -hmm. of Jerusalem. And that's a, a direct interpretation of the words spoken by angels to the disciples at his ascension from that location outside Jerusalem. Acts 1.11, this Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And because he, this occurred on the Mount of Olives, some have interpreted, many have interpreted this as meaning Christ's return will be to the Mount of Olives. I'm not sure it strictly says that, but you can see why people would think that, and they Absolutely. may well be right. Now, Absolutely. between AD 70, the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple, and the devastation of Jerusalem, and 1948, all of this was difficult to read literally. Those that did so and had not subscribed to supersessionism, the idea that all of this was symbolic spiritual language referring to the church, often assumed that there must be a return of the Jews to their ancestral lands. And we find this beginning to be explicitly stated from the 17th century onwards. Still a minority view, but increasing in significance, Christian Zionism, we sometimes call it, in the 19th century. Then in 1948, the establishment of the State of Israel occurred. So it's little wonder that although people still debate about it, it is a major component in almost all modern day end times thinking. The mm. establishment of the State of Israel is for many the event that started the end times clock running. Mm. However, the question in this understanding, whether one subscribes to that understanding or not, is if that is the understanding, is how long will the end times clock run? Assuming it's correct to say it started in 1948. In the 1970s, it was common to think it would be a generation after 1948, due to a reading of Matthew 24, which talks about this generation will see all this, which I actually think was referring to the structure of the Jerusalem Temple. That's a little bit That's controversial, right. I know. But but anyway, anyway, we might talk about that in, in the panel I discussion. Be, I think it'd be good to talk yeah. about it definitely next yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, a lot of people have read this generation to mean the generation that will see the second coming of Christ. Now, mm. 1948 caused some people to say, well, clearly, um, that must be 1988. Because that's 40 years, approximately a generation since 
the establishment of the State of Israel. Now, clearly, 1988 came and went. It didn't happen. I now see some people saying it will happen a century after 1948, which to me stretches the concept of a generation beyond all biblical definition. But the key points of all of these is that the State of Israel is a highly significant state, however you, whatever one thinks about it, and many people have seen it as being a trigger event in terms of end times events. The key is, if they're correct and it is an end time clock starting event, how long does the end time clock run for? And that's where we then end up in some very, very complicated positions. Quite interestingly, because as you mentioned, we don't know how long that that, cl that, that clock taken for, and and it, no. Allison, it, it can happen for another two hundred years before Jesus return or even the rapture take place as well. We mm. we don't know, but uh, but I think the significance on this understanding that there is a state of Israel, which you know when we look at the, the prophecy from from Daniel, you know, really speaking about the the Antichrist and, and the, the 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 rebuilding of the of the temple as well uh, in Jerusalem as well, which we may touch on next week or not, depending on it. And all these elements, you know, really point out towards, um, I wouldn't say so much an acceleration of event, but the positioning, you know, there's a word that keeps coming mm. to me, is this kind of the positioning of events, you know, it's almost like a, a chess game for God, you know, just start putting his, his positioning and, and we're beginning now to see things happening and taking place as well. And one of the things that I'm not well versed, about the tool which i wanted you to touch about is the cold war in us obviously yeah. we know you know americans and 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 and, and ussi in that sense mm. just a really kind of trading blows and which really culminating in the destruction of the whole earth to be honest and it was yeah. quite scary in, in the you know sense. so you must believe that during the time of the cold war people people believe and time have been kind of accented because of what was happening what was happening there yes. what's your take on this yeah it's clear that over 2000 years many who applied end times prophecies to the contemporary situation felt strongly that these ancient texts in the scripture resonated with current events and the ability to hmm. do this obviously regardless of the failure of such application in the past is one of the striking characteristics of communities focused on applied eschatology which is why we have to be careful about it because often we get it wrong but it can be it can plausibly be argued that the situation since 1945 has been different to the previous 2000 years for the first time in history humans have the ability to obliterate life using weapons that were undreamed of in the past fire raining from the sky great clouds of smoke vast destruction unimaginably large numbers of casualties appalling sickness are of course the hallmarks of nuclear warfare so it's not surprising that the threat of this has been seen as a fulfillment of prophecies that in the past were considered to only be possible due to direct divine intervention now it seems the judgment that falls on the world could be could be the direct result of human nuclear action and that clearly focused a lot of minds in the 1950s the 60s the 70s and the 80s and before the collapse of the ussr in 1991 a great deal of end time speculation centered on identifications of old testament tribes as the countries of the warsaw pact that was the ussr's equivalent of nato mm. and in many ways this was people looked at things like gog magog meshek tubal and these these other old testament tribes that are described as being the um, the, the northern enemies of israel uh, this was very much kind of a christian companion to cold war politics and it's not surprising that what ezekiel regarded as tribes of the far north should be viewed during the cold war as the ussr 
and the nations of the Warsaw Pact. That intensified in the 70s and 80s. I very much remember this as a teenager of the 70s. But then, of course, the USSR collapsed between 1989 and 1991. Other people accused the European Union of being a revived Roman Empire at the same time and fulfilling end times prophecy, an accusation made in the past against medieval emperors and also Napoleon. In the 1970s, I remember this, much emphasis was placed on when it would gain 10 members. It surpassed that decades ago, but the accusation continues and it occurred recently during the Brexit referendum. And this trend towards a premillennialist outlook has increased since the end of the Second World War. It's accelerated the belief we now live in the end times. And as I said, that's understandable. The premillennial perspective has been further energised by globalisation because there are the interconnections brought by the expansion of information technology, World Wide Web, social media, complex financial arrangements and instruments that involve millions in networks of economic interaction and dependency. And the idea that global institutions could malignly control the lives of the human population is easier to envisage now than ever. Now, none of that means that the second coming must be imminent, but it could be. And these factors help explain the fresh explosion of interest in the topic. And without doubt, many of these developments are clearly unprecedented in history and very thought-provoking. Furthermore, the development of widespread literacy across the globe and the rise of mass media in the 20th century and 21st century internet has meant that these ideas have spread to an extraordinary degree, which is one of the reasons why we live at the moment in a heightened time of end times debate. Mm. It's quite interesting uh, what you mentioned, the explosion of information, mass information, and, and touching on the 21st century now, and we, we touched a little bit on it last week when we made the comparison between the uh, um, the print and the social media now, and, and yes. you know, yes. looking at end times today and, and, and 21st century, it's incredible to see that now the information is spread so quickly in that sense. And it's spreading yes. in such a way that everybody now have a bit of a knowledge about some kind of end time. May not have yes. the understanding of it, no. but have some kind of knowledge about this. So you will talk to people and you will ask them questions about what's the Antichrist or do you believe the Antichrist? People will be able to, either they don't know, they will just will have to just look on their phone, do some yes. research on YouTube, and they will have a mainstream of information about not completely accurate because obviously people just bring their own opinion to it, but they will have some kind of understanding about Antichrist. So when we're talking about end time and in the 21st century, and you touch also on something called modern nationalism as well, which is quite very important, I think. What 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 do you, what do you what are you trying to explain to us for your book when you're touching on this 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 aspect of modern nationalism, 21st century, and end times? Right. I think it's interesting how one finds particular trends speak to a particular moment. You've just rightly reminded us about what we talked about, the print explosion in the 16th Mm -hmm. century and how that led to a huge explosion of of interest. We've talked about the the Cold War ideas that had all sorts of spin-off effects. Uh, Mm -hmm. And obviously, I mean, old-style print media, things like, you know, the Left Behind series that sold millions and millions of copies of influence ideas. Um, And obviously that's accelerated now with the idea of things like the internet and and social media and rapture ready websites and and so on and so forth and i think what this goes to show is that within any given time 
not surprisingly, end time beliefs tell us something about the age in which we live. And that can also tell us something about the culture in which we live as well. Now, that doesn't mean to say that what's being said is wrong, but it does mean to say that one has to look at end times beliefs and say, is this telling me something as much about the culture in which I, I live as it is about the actual objective reality? So, for example, it's notable how in recent years, end times beliefs particularly in the 21st century, have been used in support of right-wing politics and nationalism across the globe. Now, in the past, end times beliefs have often been associated with social radicalism. Certainly in the 17th century, it was associated with republicanism in, in, in this country, Anabaptist revolts against the rich and powerful in Germany in the 16th century. But recently, end times beliefs have become particularly associated with right-wing politics and nationalism why, we've why seen this for example what why why is that that's mm -hmm. a very very good question i think partly this is my personal view i think partly it's a spin-off from the cold war when mm -hmm. end times were very much weaponized politicized on behalf of the west against communism against the ussr and i think that was a weaponization if you like as it mm -hmm. were, of end times belief. And I think this is the latest departure, the latest latest trend in that weaponization. I also think because people can mine end times beliefs to find the alien other, the person that is beyond the pale, you know, the person who is the ally of Antichrist. Mm -hmm. And if people can then associate their their nation with the good guys and your nation or somebody else's nation with the bad guys that can be a very very powerful buttress to nationalism you know my country the nationalists would say is not only the best country in the world the nationalists would say it's also the one that god's going to use to defeat the forces of antichrist mm -hmm. and that brings us to the usa where end times beliefs have been very strongly used in the last 20 years and it's come out of this kind of Cold War backing, backstory to, to support opposition to federal government activities, to support support for uh, opposition. Sorry, to, so people who want to oppose the federal government activities often include many end time enthusiasts. People mm -hmm. who want to oppose gun control often include many end times enthusiasts. People mm -hmm. who want to oppose COVID restrictions often include many end times enthusiasts and so in the usa end times beliefs which can be socially radical have become very closely associated with effectively right-wing republican politics we saw it in the uk in in a much in a much smaller way in the nationalist debates concerning the eu it's not just that i disagree with the eu says the anti-eu person it's that i actually believe that the um the EU is a seat of Antichrist, says the anti-EU person, okay? Um, so so those people who are anti-EU within the Christian church, it obviously strengthened their argument to say, it's not just I disagree with the rule from Brussels, and we can, you know, we can just discuss that, 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 that's a separate topic, but they would actually say, ah, I actually think it's Antichrist. And that put it completely beyond the pale, that put it completely unacceptable. And I think that was manipulated. And obviously some of our listeners will be on one side, some mm -hmm. will be leave uh some of our listeners will be remain um mm -hmm. but clearly both i suspect will have heard the accusation that the eu 
is the seat of Antichrist. And I would say that's just the latest in the series of quarrying of scripture in order to support particular viewpoints. That's my point of view on it, okay? We've seen it in opposition to COVID restrictions in a number of countries. And this is an interesting thing. It has surged in Russia since the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, where Putin's Russia is now being presented as the orthodox opponent of an antichrist west and we're hearing that said louder and louder and louder in russia so just as there are some people in the west saying oh putin's the antichrist so there are serious orthodox nationalists in russia saying oh no the west is the antichrist and we've seen end times weaponized in nationalism in the last 20 years and it's happening now and it's something we should have alarm bells ringing over Wow, that's very captivating. Thank you so much. One couple of last last topic uh, on your book that we want to touch before we uh, we we wrap up um, this podcast: climate change. You know, yeah. it's just a, such yeah. a major topic in climate change. Now, you put the end times um, and climate change. What, what I mean, I want our listeners to really hear from what you have to say about this because I think people yeah. have different views, but there is definitely a relationship. And in that sense, between end times and climate change, and 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 I think yeah. this is something that's gotta, I would say, begin to bring quite a lot more these days as well. I, I hear a lot of commentaries lately, really, gotta bringing this a bit more into the surface. Like people are bringing the, the situation with Putin be the antichrist, and 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 yeah. and Russia and see the West are the antichrist as well. The kind of weaponization, as you mentioned, to it. There is also when we're talking about climate change, something which is kind of brewing and and really kind of take is is kind of place in in kind of the end time folklore of people that are actually talking about it. Does and so yes. what would you say about this? Right, we live in unprecedented times. There's absolutely no question about this. As I'm saying this, as we're talking, the UK, it seems, is set to see the highest temperature ever recorded in the country tomorrow. I mean, Mm. this is... It's extraordinary, okay? Um, and this isn't a blip. You know, this this is something is happening. We live in an age. I mean, I believe in human caused climate change, okay? I, um, that's that's where I come from. So I've got to be clear about that. I believe that human beings have caused climate change. Now we, li- but whatever people think about it, we live in an age of climate change emergency. I believe it's caused by human beings. Uh, some people obviously have other points of view, um, but the point is nobody can deny. That something strange is going on. Something dramatic is going on. And you can understand that in such a time of crisis, end times arguments have been advanced. Because obviously the big debate at the moment is, can human beings do something about changing climate change? Can they improve it? Can they decrease it? Uh, Can they have a positive effect? But one of the things that is increasingly being said within end times arguments is that it's futile to attempt to take action to save the planet. And so increasingly what we're hearing, and I, I don't approve of this, I hasten to add, I think this is wrong, um, but we're increasingly hearing people say, oh, there's no point in trying to save the planet because it's an end times experience and there's, there's nothing you can do about it. And, and obviously this has occurred at a time of global pandemic, war in Ukraine, a surge in food prices, 
general cost of living crisis. And not mm -hmm. surprisingly, that has accelerated end times interpretation of events in some communities. And some of our listeners will know about this and some of our listeners will, you know, will, will, ha will have those views. Um, but it should be noted, though, the 14th century was also a time of climate instability. Nothing like today, I hasten to add. But crop failure, war in Europe and a pandemic far more lethal than COVID-19. So it was also a time of heightened end times assumptions. So all I'm saying is, we may be living in days which are indeed part of this end time experience. And they are unprecedented days. They, whatever we think about it, they are unprecedented. But that doesn't necessarily mean the end times are imminent. But you can see why people are discussing it that way. It's understandable, though I think sometimes, personally speaking, some very wrong conclusions are drawn. Because I think God expects us to care for our planet, even if, in the long term, or even the short term, it's not going to be successful because I think he expects us to have creation responsibilities as part of our genesis care for the planet. So yeah. I am not one of those that thinks, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. I think that whether we're successful or not, we have to try because I think God will come to us and say, what did you do to care for my planet? But you can see why people at the moment are beginning to say, oh, well, maybe there's nothing you can do because it is just so big and so enormous. So this this is a lot of behind a lot of end times thinking at the moment. That's wonderful. Wow. That has been packed, packed, packed of revelation and insight in your book. Now, you write this book called End Time Again. So my final question for you is, where are we today? Okay. I wanted to connect today with the past, because after all, I am a historian. There's a story told, and it may be apocryphal or it may be true, that in the 17th century, a very dark day caused the members of a New England assembly in America to think the end of the world was upon them. Their debating chamber was deep in premature shadows, and a motion was presented that they should disperse their homes and wait events with prayer. Mm. At last, the speaker made his ruling. It allegedly went as follows. Quote, either this is the end of the world or it is not. If it is not, we've got business to attend to. If it is, then I would have it that Christ finds us attending to our duties. I rule, let lights be brought. Don't go home, stay here and work. That's a challenging thought. And I think that's the challenging thought to Christian believers in 2022. To believe in the second coming but to still be fully engaged with the responsibilities of life. And engagement with such responsibility doesn't have a prescribed political flavour or an agenda. Eschatology is not the preserve of one political wing, however it might now seem. The early church was a powerless, radical community that engaged in transformative behaviour as it awaited the return of Jesus. We would do well to heed the advice of that legendary New England Assembly speaker, Facing the assumption the second coming was imminent, he decided on engagement with the tasks of the day rather than on speculation regarding the coming parousia or retreating from the concerns and problems around him. I think we can learn from that and we should be active in the Christian business of transforming society and leave the timing of the second coming to God. Let lights be brought. Love it, love it. Leave the timing to God. I mean, let God do his timing in that sense. Martin, it's been wonderful. Those three sessions, those three sessions I spent with you has been amazing. And again, for our listeners, and time again, I would definitely encourage you to get this book. 
to read this book it just gives you such an insightful of uh, of uh, belief end time belief throughout history so for those who want to speak to martin uh we'll be meeting martin next week we're having a panelist on the 25th of july from 8 30 onward and that will be via zoom if you want to know more information please email us at info at revelationhour.co.uk and we will be sending you the link to access uh this zoom it's the zoom meeting is not webinar so you will be able to ask a question as the different panelists um we'll have a prophetess sharon Enkra as well from christian life fellowship um uh, pastor martin ray uh, from Christian Life Fellowship in Scotland and uh, Fred William as well which is another pastor from a different church and also Martin will be here and they will be discussing about end time so whatever question you have whatever doubt you have or whatever things you know no question is stupid enough you know we're all learning we all try to understand you know where we are the time we're here and those gentlemen will give their time to answer all your questions so if you want to be part of the Zoom meeting, please send us an email at info at revelationhour.co.uk and we'll respond to you promptly and we'll send you the link to this Zoom webinar. If you can't get on a Zoom, you can also possibly access it on YouTube as well and you still be able to write your question on the chat and we'll be monitoring those questions as well and be able to filter those questions to our panelists. Martin, it's been wonderful meeting with you. It's been wonderful in hearing. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm really, really excited. I just feel that there's so much information here that I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do some of the research now. It's so much impactful as well. This is Revelation Hour in Focus. Martin, thank you very much again for being for being with us and we shall see you again next week you know God thank leading. you thank you thank Probably. you so this is revelation hour in focus i'm jean-marc and we shall catch up with you again for our next episode see you later bye